Welcome to The Root of the Matter, brought to you by UPL. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you fresh ideas and insights about agriculture in North America. I'm your host, Ken Root. It is spring 2022. How's your weed crop doing? Not funny, but as sure as the earth tilts and the ground warms, weeds emerge. Farmers have always fought the war against yield-robbing plants growing in their fields, sapping moisture and shading new crop seedlings. But in the 1960s, agricultural scientists had a breakthrough with herbicides that prevented weed seed from germinating or selectively killed weeds, leaving the crop to grow. But weeds are one of nature's smart biologicals, and they became resistant to our attempts to chemically control them. In the 70s, a herbicide known as Roundup was patented by Monsanto as a total vegetation-killing compound, glyphosate. It couldn't be used on crops because it killed all the plants. However, in 1990, that era, genetic modification of several crops, naming corn, soybeans, cotton, canola, sugar beets, rice, and alfalfa, allowed the use of glyphosate as a selective herbicide. The battle against the weeds looked like it might be won. But weeds have shown they're smarter again than we thought. And now we have some weeds that are resistant to almost everything we can use. A steel hoe seems to be the only device that can control them one plant at a time. Today our guest is a weed scientist who is fighting weeds with all the tools at his disposal and has some strategies you might want to consider. Dr. Aaron Hager is an associate professor in the soil science department at the University of Illinois. Dr. Hager, how are you doing? We're doing very well this morning, Ken. Thank you for asking. I've talked long enough and should have most everyone depressed by this time. Um, I've read papers you've written and some stories written about you. You go back to being a farm boy in the 1980s in Cass County, Illinois. Mm -hmm. What was your pathway to weed scientist from there? Actually, truth be told, my entire childhood, I had convinced myself that I would stay home and farm. I had absolutely no idea nor intention of leaving Cass County, of going to a university anywhere. But I learned in my teenage years that there were two very important people who disagreed with my planning, and that uh, one was named Mother and the other was named Father. <laughs> Yeah. And they said, no, absolutely not. You're not staying here. When you finish high school, you will go to college. And so long story short, I selected uh, Southern Illinois University of Carbondale to go for my undergraduate degree. And there I met Dr. George Capusta, who was a well-known weed scientist, uh, had a very long tenure in Southern Illinois, and became interested in this, this subject matter of, of weed science. And spoke with Dr. Capusta one day, and he produced a letter that he had received from a weed scientist at Michigan State University who was looking for potential graduate students, and that was written by Dr. Karen Renner. And uh -huh. so I visited with Dr. Renner one time, and she offered me an assistantship at Michigan State University, so I went there for a master's degree. And while I was there, uh, I got to know uh, fellow graduate students quite well, one of whom was from Illinois originally, and who finished his PhD work about a year before I finished my master's degree work. 
And before he left campus to move back to Illinois, I said, Joe, I said, if you ever hear of any physicians open up at the University of Illinois, just let me know. I'd, I'd be interested in maybe moving back to Illinois. So lo and behold, one evening the phone rang and, and Joe had called and said there was a full-time position uh, at Illinois if I would be interested in applying to it. It was a 100% extension appointment for weed science. And that was very appealing to me. Dr. Renner had an extension appointment and it was really fascinating that you could be a faculty member with the responsibility of essentially interacting directly with farmers. And I knew I was never smart enough to be a farmer. I knew that hands down. But this was very intriguing. This idea of extension work was was very interesting to me. And so I applied for that position and I was able to, I was selected as the, as a candidate for it. And about a year or so after I started here, Dr. Lloyd Wax, who was a, a world-renowned weed scientist with USDA ARF, stationed here at the University of Illinois, came into my office one day and he said, Aaron, he said, how long do you plan to be here? And I said, I have absolutely no idea. But he said, well, if you're going to plan to be here for a few years, why don't you work on a PhD? And that sounded like a very interesting idea to me. And so I did that, took a little bit longer than normal because I was working full time, but eventually finished my Ph.D. Um, interacted for several years with Dr. Marsha McLamory, Dr. Ellery Kinnake, uh, two of the extension weed scientists here at the University of Illinois. And then after Dr. McLamory retired, uh, his position was re-advertised and I applied for it. And long story short, I've been here ever since. So next month we'll begin my 29th year here at the University of Illinois. Well, that's a very interesting background. I want to make two comments about it and see if they match up with you before we get into the heart of this discussion. Mm -hmm. The first one is that your parents said that to you, that you're not going to farm in the 1980s. And mm -hmm. there were a lot of people that were so depressed about agriculture in the 1980s, they forbid their children from mm -hmm. getting a degree in agriculture. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was kind of sad. But the university showed that in the number of uh, agricultural students uh, coming through uh, really until the mid-90s. Mm -hmm. um, was mm -hmm. that much the case with your parents? Actually, with, with my uh, family and my parents, my dad was a World War II veteran. I was the last of six kids. So um, I always tell people either they saved the best for last, which I don't think was the case, or <laughs> I came out, mom and dad said, if they're coming out like this, that's it, no more. But essentially, Dad farmed ever since he got out of the World War II in 1946, 47, and we never owned any of the farm ground. And so I think most of their concern for me wanting to stay home and farm was just simply the fact that it was not necessarily a guarantee that there would be the farm ground that I could continue the, the family operation on into the future. And so um, yeah. that really was, was the thinking on their part. They wanted something that they felt was going to be more secure for me in my future. The second area for me is the fact that you went on to get that Ph.D. And literally every one of you that I talk to, and there are several across the country that are weed scientists, are at that level of education, which gives me hope and also states that this is a complex situation that you guys are dealing with. And that if we're going to be able to utilize our universities and our companies you're working science at a very high level to try to compete with these weeds. So this is not just off your cuffs, off the cuff stuff that you guys try out in the field. Um, there's strategies 
and there's a lot of chemistry and there's a lot of other things that go into what you talk about. Even though you're talking about it at an extension level, the complexity I see of your industry is quite complex. It, it is without a doubt. And uh, without a doubt, uh, yeah, I've been very fortunate in my time here at Illinois to, to be able to work with some excellent lead scientists here, uh, both within the University of Illinois system as, as well as USDA ARS scientists. We have three U of I uh, faculty members in weed science, myself, Dr. Tranel, and Dr. Reekers. I'm the extension weed scientist, so I affectionately refer to myself on the outdoor clod kicker. Uh, Dr. Tranel and Dr. Reekers are both excellent basic scientists with excellent molecular biology skills. Dr. Reekers is also a herbicide physiologist. So the, the projects that we've been able to, to work on here, predominantly around herbicide resistance in the amaranthus complex, uh, we've been able to, to go into so much depth and detail. You know, when I started here 29 years ago, if we had a suspect case of herbicide resistance, we had at the time the expertise to do the field work, we could do the greenhouse work, and we could do the analytical laboratory work, which essentially would look at herbicide uptake, translocation, and metabolism to see if any of those could be responsible for the observed resistance. Now, we can still do all three of those, and we do continue to do all three of those. But with the additional skill sets that my colleagues have in the molecular sciences, uh, a, a more recent example about uh, what would it be now, 10 or 12 years ago, we discovered what turned out to be the first case of resistance to the HPPD inhibiting herbicide anywhere in the world. And the first thing that we actually did with that is we sequenced the genes. And once we sequenced the gene, we were able to determine, well, there's, there's nothing different in this gene sequence of this suspect population compared with a known sensitive. So now we, we more or less went back to looking at herbicide uptake, translocation, and metabolism as a possible resistance mechanism. So what we can do nowadays in terms of trying to do the research to understand the resistance is so much more advanced in terms of the molecular sciences than we've ever had here before. Let me cut to the chase here. What's the state of herbicide resistance across the Midwest right now? It's an issue that, that we would probably suggest is going to be one of the most challenging weed management issues that farmers across most regions of the Midwest are going to have to contend with basically into the foreseeable future. Um, if you look at the increase in the number of herbicide-resistant populations, weed species, uh, herbicides to which resistance has evolved, it's a pretty linear increase. And it has been that way really since about the, the early to mid-1980s. Uh, recent estimates worldwide, I believe there's over 500 unique cases now of herbicide resistance. And in those over 500 unique cases, that includes over 266 different plant species. And so we certainly don't have all of those here in the United States, but certainly across most of the corn, corn growing, soybean growing, small grains growing regions of the United States, resistance is an issue that simply will not go away in the foreseeable future. It's something that farmers are going to have to contend with simply because if we can't adequately manage weeds, 
the relationship between weeds and crops is one directional. And by that, I mean, I've never seen a published paper that shows the presence of weeds have ever increased crop yield at all. It's always the other way around. They decrease no, no. crop yield. And, but at the same time, the farmer is uh, putting more and more effort into increasing their crop yields, and mm-hmm. they're fighting a, a stronger and stronger foe, uh, either through the cost of controlling it or the damage it's doing if it gets uh, loose in their field. Mm-hmm. Um, let me ask you a question of the people from the northern U.S., the people in the South seem to be fighting very hard. I've talked to people in Louisiana and Arkansas about the weeds that they're getting, and uh, they're just astounding. Mm-hmm. And Illinois is a north-south state. Are you seeing these really resistant weeds moving north? Uh, interesting question, Ken. When I, when I started here in 1993, I think we had about three species that had been confirmed to have herbicide resistance, we're up to about 11 or 12 now, which means either I've screwed this state up completely during my time here, or we've become fairly good at finding these things. I'm not sure which. But generally speaking, our resistance for herbicide resistance issues are centered around predominantly one species, and that is water hemp, uh, Latin binomials amaranthus tuberculatus. And it's been interesting to watch this species because technically and, and factually, water hemp actually is indigenous to Illinois. In other words, it's always been here. Mm-hmm. But it's only been within about the last 25 to 30 years that it's really become the challenge that it is today. And how challenging is it today? Well, you, you take a weed species that... 30 years ago, there might have only been three or four people in the entire state that even recognized what it was. To now being on most of our acres of corn and soybeans, the number one driver species for herbicide decisions. And it's, you know, if you think about 30 years from a landscape ecology, if you think about 30 years from an evolutionary standpoint, that's really the blink of an eye. And so this species has really dominated so much of our time, research time, extension time, and effort. And we certainly believe justifiably so because it is a very, very challenging species. The folks in the Mid-South, some of the folks in the South, uh, Eastern United States are battling a similar amaranthus species, but their predominant one is Palmer amaranth. So these are genetically related species, but certainly a lot of differences between the competitive ability of water hemp versus Palmer. Now, we've been fairly fortunate. I think here in the Midwest, we really haven't seen the northward incursion of, of Palmer uh, to the extent that, you know, folks in the Mid-South and the Southeast have had to deal with it now. Well, Palmer is scary. I jokingly asked a weed scientist if he thought it would take the place of pine trees for pulpwood, and he didn't rule it out. I wonder... You know, if we just have to turn around and go back to the earliest herbicides we had and start all over again, I mean, is pre-emerge to you a major factor now in controlling a weed population before it ever gets out of the ground? You know, soil residual herbicides have always been very important components to our overall weed management systems here. When I started here, we would sit down with farmers and talk about, okay, here's your program for this year. 
here's something to think about next year. And even the third year, when you rotate back to this year's crop, maybe consider this. So we had long-term planning in terms of herbicide strategy. I think in your introduction, you alluded to the era of glyphosate-resistant soybean, glyphosate-resistant corn, and how everything more or less became fairly simplified. Well, I would argue that in the era where we were using glyphosate almost exclusively, we could control weeds like we never had been able to before, but that doesn't mean that we manage weeds as well as we could have or perhaps even should have. And so by incorporating more herbicide active ingredients into our system, we can try to reduce the selection intensity to evolve resistance to any one of them. But certainly I think we've reached the point now where we're working with species that have resistance mechanisms that, quite frankly, we've not seen before. We're going to have to realize that we're going to continue as a state here in Illinois we're going to continue to use residual herbicides. We're going to continue to use foliar flight herbicides, but we're reaching the point very, very quickly where farmers are going to have to look and say, well, in addition to herbicides, what else can we do to try to ensure that by the end of the growing season that none of these water hemp plants produce any seeds? Well, is there um, a layering process that you're a part of today? I've heard this from this couple of sources that seems to be what farmers could put in their pocket to utilize in the years ahead, that with what we have now, you can do a decent job of controlling the identified resistant weeds. We probably are, are getting around to the topic of what we refer to as layered herbicide applications. And the idea behind that is, of course, you know, we're going to try to get the crop out of the ground as quickly as possible under weed-free conditions. And of course, that would mean utilizing the soil residual herbicide close to that time of, of planting. We will then, very likely because of the biology of some of our troublesome weed species, we're going to, more times than not, need to come in with a post-emergence herbicide as well. But the idea of the layered residual then comes into play in this post-emergence time frame. So we have selected our foliar applied herbicide that's going to control the emerged weeds. But then the thought is, can we add something to that that, again, gives us more soil residual activity? So in other words, can we double shot, if you would, twice during this growing season, utilizing herbicides that have a longer soil residual activity to try to ensure that that crop now can canopy without any additional weeds being present. Dr. Aaron Hager is our guest. He's an associate professor of crop science at University of Illinois. A while back, I was talking with a um, weed scientist, and just off the cuff, I had been reading about this weed seed destructor that supposedly is being mounted on the back of combine so as the weed seed comes out it basically crushes it and ruins its capability to germinate and for the rest of the discussion that's all he wanted to talk about and it surprised me you know that there's so many strategies out there i guess that you guys are looking at are you looking at other means besides uh, especially for these resistant weeds that look like they could get away from you are you looking at mechanical means to actually kill those seeds? Yes, actually, I uh, was involved with some uh, uh, proposal years and years ago with Dr. Adam Davis. At the time, he was 
the uh, wheat scientist here with the USDA ARS, and we put together a proposal for funding to bring to the United States the Harrington Seed Destructor, which originated by an ingenious farmer in Australia. So long story short, that grant was funded, and to the best of our knowledge, when we brought those two machines to the United States, that was the first instance of these harvest weed seed control devices being here in the United States. One stayed here at Champaign-Urbana, and the other went to the USDA facility outside of Beltsville, Maryland. And the, the premise behind the Harrington Seed Destructor was that the, the challenging species for farmers in Australia is ryegrass. Well, if you look at the size of a ryegrass seed and compare that to the size of a pigweed seed, they're quite different. Pigweed seeds are very, very small. And we really had no idea, can something like this technology actually work to reduce or destroy these seeds as they're coming through the combine. And fast forward after a lot of years of, of Dr. Davis working on this project, the answer is yes, it can be quite effective. Hmm. Now, the units that we brought here were the original pull-behind units. They actually attached to the combine and were pulled behind the combine. Those aren't even manufactured anymore, to my knowledge. Now they have units that are actually integrated into the back end of the combine. And we, you know, our, our work does continue with that, looking to see how effective these these modular, if you would, units uh, can be. And, you know, results so far look very, very promising still. Well, for those people who don't want to move to that and may see that it's transitional as well, if they've got a resistant breakout of weeds that they clearly spot in their soybeans, for example, which is where you could see the most, I would think, and you don't want it to go to seed, what's your method or what's your suggestion for them to go after that? You know, we used to go after weeds because the combines would carry them from Oklahoma north into Kansas and north into the Dakotas uh, that were called noxious weeds and did a pretty darn good job of controlling that mechanically. Um, is there the possibility that in these resistant breakouts that, Mechanical work over the summer and fall can pay off? It, it certainly can. And, and, you know, that continues to be something that we encourage, you know, individual farmers to consider. You know, we're not necessarily proposing moving away from limited tillage or no tillage systems, but certainly there are some other ways that we can try to manage weeds in addition to chemically. You know, for example, row crop cultivation can still work. You know, there's, there's no weeds that I've seen yet that have evolved resistance to steel. Um, really depends, of course, you know, on the machinery setup, but now you have guidance systems, you know, to help, you know, guide your way through fields and cultivating corn, cultivating soybeans, for example. When I was a kid growing up on the farm, dad said, you know, you need to get on the tractor and go plow the cornfield. Well, I took him literally and took out a few rows, but I think by and large, that is, is the thing of the past. The other course is we encourage people, if you had a few scattered plants, you know, pigweed plants, water hemp plants, Try to, you know, take the time and effort to go pull them out before you run the combine through the field. It, it's it's amazing the quantity of seed that these amaranthus female plants can produce. You're talking hundreds of thousands of seeds per individual plant. And if you ran these things through this combine, now you've turned this massive harvesting machine simultaneously into the most efficient weed seed spreader that man has ever created. And so... 
I get the idea that not a lot of folks like to walk soybeans when it's hot. I never did when I was a kid. It was not the most enjoyable thing to do. But it still can be very, very helpful because when we talk about the amaranthus and the problems we see with resistance in our peaweeds, we can't be successful long-term by simply waiting for somebody to bring out a new jug. We can't fix this problem by simply opening up a new jug. It's not going to work. When we started looking at amaranthus in Illinois 26 years ago, we only had resistance to herbicides from about one class. We're up to seven now, and it will continue to increase in the future. So really the the important take-home message that we have tried to stress for years, if we're talking about something like water hemp, or if we're talking about something like Palmer amaranth, the long-term solution is not necessarily just chemical. We will continue to use chemicals. We will continue to use herbicides, and I think justifiably so. But the one thing that we have known for certain is that the weakness of water hemp is the seed. And the weakness lies in the fact that the seed does not remain viable in the soil seed bank indefinitely. It's not something like velvet leaf seed that may remain viable for 40, 50, 60 years. On average, you're probably looking at 10 years or less in terms of viability of water hemp. Well, what can you use that information? How can you use that to better manage some of these populations? Well, again, we go back to doing whatever it takes herbicides, layered residuals, walking fields, cultivation, cover crops, anything, harvest weed seed control to try to ensure that by the end of the year, there's no seed produced. And if we can do that consecutively for three or four years, what you will see is your numbers of pigweed populations will will start to go down very dramatically. That really is a long-term solution to these problems of resistance. I was thinking about the social element of agriculture, you know, the straight rows that you had to plant. And, of course, GPS and uh, auto steer made that almost perfection. But also, you know, no weeds showing in your field. Mm -hmm. And now I'm hearing some stories of farmers who are renting land and they let a weed species escape. And the uh, owner of the property comes by and sees it and they lose that land. So I'm wondering if there's the social element of I'm going to do what I have to do, even if it's in the heat of summer in a soybean field, to go out there and kill that weed with a hoe. You know, it's, it's an interesting uh, concept and certainly one that has been very common You know, here in Illinois for years. Farmers take a lot of pride in how their fields look. I can remember back in January of 2008, we had discovered glyphosate-resistant water hemp in Illinois. I believe it was either 2006 or 2007. And we had done some field work, some greenhouse work, and we decided it was time to come up with very specific recommendations around managing glyphosate-resistant water hemp in soybeans. And so I sat down with my colleagues, and we came up with a five-step recommendation. And essentially what we try to convince farmers to do is you need to stop, you know, start at number one and work your way down to number five. Don't pick and choose which ones you like to do, want to do, and disregard the others. They all build off each other. So we start this messaging in January of 2008. And the first of these five steps was not only should you be using a soil residual herbicide, you should make the application at the full labeled rate according to your soil type and organic matter. 
As soon as I got that out of my mouth, I had no credibility with the audience whatsoever. Why in the world would we do that? It can't be that bad. That's just going to add cost to our production system. Yep. That's the university trying to scare us. It can't be that bad. And if it ever gets that bad, somebody's going to come out with something to fix the problem. That was 2008. You fast forward to, to, you know, to 2021. Now, I don't really have accurate estimates on this, but if I had to guess, I would say 60, perhaps 70 percent or more of the soybean acres in Illinois were treated with a residual herbicide. Now, that's not because of my recommendation. Nobody listened to me. That, and that's fine. The reason that percentage is increased is basically biology forced a change. And biology will continue to force changes as, how we, as we move forward, trying to continue to get good weed control in our systems here. Dr. Hager, I wonder if you could finish up with me today on um, your short version from the last either Zoom or live meeting you had with Extension and talking to farmers on what you're telling them now that they need to do if they're going to utilize the, the herbicides and other technologies this year and into 2023 that are, by your estimate, the ones most likely to allow them to have a greater chance of controlling these resistant weeds? Mm -hmm. Well, certainly the first thing is we always encourage people to know what you have. If you don't know what your resistance profile is in your populations, it can be a bit perilous in trying to come up with the best product that could give you the adequate control that you need. So certainly pay attention. What did you struggle with last year? Did everything work well last year? Or are you still planning to use it again this year, given some of the shortages that we do have? The challenges of the supply chain are going to be very, very real this year. My guess is they're going to continue to next year. So what can we do to try to optimize and make sure that we give our product every opportunity to work as effectively as possible the first time around? You know, we've, we've had for many, many years this idea, well, if I miss it the first time, I'll just have it resprayed. We need to maybe stop thinking about doing that in 2022 and 2023. So sit down if you've not done this, you know, historically or before, you know, sit down with your input supplier, sit down with your extension weed control guide, go through there, read that information and see what other alternative products might work, given what you know about your weed spectrum here in 2022. Well, in doing that, I hope that farmers can uh, then utilize the products that they uh select working with their uh, local ag chem dealers and others to be able to uh, to go out and do the job um, for this year of course uh, much is yet to be seen but this is an interesting year because we have a, a a very high price of fertilizer and we also have a potential shortage of it mm -hmm. we also have a very high price for the crop and I wonder how the balance of that economically is going to shake out. So I won't put you in a position. <laughs> You've got enough going without being an ag economist. But it is going to be a, a challenging year because denial of bushels is going to wind up being denial of profitability. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and one thing I'll, I'll kind of leave you with here in, in, in parting is that in the 29 years that I've been doing this gig here at the University of Illinois, I've never said one thing. I've never made one recommendation that's ever increased a farmer's yield by one bushel. That's not what we do. We in weed science are in the yield preservation business. That's what we do. 
And the reason I say that is because weeds, the relationships of weeds and crops, as we mentioned earlier, is a one-way relationship. They only reduce the crop yield. So by adequately managing these populations, by getting good weed control, we're essentially giving that crop, whether it's corn, whether it's soybeans, every opportunity to utilize all the available resources to maximize the genetic yield potential. The breeders are the ones who increase crop yield. The weed scientists are the ones that try to preserve that yield and give that crop the ability to try to express as much of that genetic yield potential for more bushels as possible. That's kind of sobering because uh, according to what you're saying is you can never win. You can only keep from losing and, uh, and go from that. Uh, well, thank you for your work for all these years and the years to come because you're still in the heat of this with a lot of colleagues of yours and the major companies that are all trying to get their arms around it as well. And hopefully the U.S. government, if we're going to be able to bring on any new generation products. Dr. Aaron Hager, I do appreciate you speaking to me from your capacity at the University of Illinois. Thank you, Ken. I enjoyed our conversation this morning. Thanks for listening to The Root of the Matter, sponsored by UPL. New episodes will be available every other Monday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Have a great day.